the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So uh, we are looking right now at Barbara Tuckman's uh, famous work, The Guns of August. This is a, is a history uh, book. It's an account of the first month or so of, of the First World War, the lead up to the war and primarily the military history of the first month of the war, you know, as, as you can tell from the title, The Guns of August. Um, so, you know, um, in the first two parts, the first 200 pages of this book, uh, we looked at plans. It focused mostly on the planning involved in the lead up to the war. The Schlieffen plan, the French war plans, the Russian war plans. Uh, and then we see in the second part, that was all in the first part. In the second part, we really saw how those really fell into place and how these different countries got locked into these war plans and couldn't break free of their of the strategies, which leads them to disaster, right? So I, I think basically the rest of the book then unveils the the failure of these plans on all sides, how all, you know, pretty much for every country these plans failed and then the war becomes something very different, something no one really expected, uh, a long war, a static war, uh, a, a bloody war uh, that, you know, that goes on for quite a long time. Um, but, you know, Everything sort of is going up to plan up to this point in the in the in the book, but in the last 250 300 pages of the book, what we're going to look at over the next few episodes, we really see these plans kind of grind to to a halt. To things go wrong, you know, the fog of war comes into play, and these very meticulous plans fail, and this uh, you know leads to the war that we know that 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 we're familiar with. So the more I think about it, I think this is a really excellent way to explore this phenomenon by just focusing on this one month of the war because she's not interested in the whole history of the war the whole military she's interested in why the war became what it did why it started why it was on why it became at a certain point became unavoidable the you know due to brinksmanship due to planning due to the intertangled alliances um but it really you know breaking down the the details of the battles in the early part and how you know they you know nothing really goes to plan once once war begins and there were some generals that seemed to understand that but you know it was hard to break free of that you know institutions move only very very slowly even in war uh even in war they it's not that easy for them to turn course the old metaphor of turning a a battleship, you know, or a large ship in water. It can't be done very quickly, right? And that's the, the metaphor we often use for institutions as they try to reform themselves, even in battle, uh, even in war, uh, even in these hierarchical institutions where you have the command structures. It's very hard to break free of, of old thinking. It took years, actually, for new thinking to emerge. It's actually kind of similar in the American Civil War, and there's a reason why the American Civil War is often studied as a prelude to world war one or as a as a foreshadowing of world war one because it had that same problem where for you know two years uh, thousands of people died because people were still thought they were fighting the napoleonic wars 
Um, you know, in this case, people still thought they were fighting wars like those fought in the middle of the 19th century, like the like the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and you know, that's what people were trained in. That's what military institutions were. That's how often what officers understood from war. Some people, you know, knew you know knew this wasn't going to be a war like others, but those were voices that weren't really listened to that much. So, anyways, there's not that much. I mean. Uh, in terms of, there's not many chapters in this third hundred pages of the book. Uh, we're really talking about chapters 12 to 15 of the book, um, covering pages in the Library of America, I think uh, 219 to 323, uh, more or less. It, so the chapters, uh, basically we have three chapters uh, looking at the Western Front, and then we get one chapter beginning a look at the Eastern Front, and, and we'll pick that up in the next episode or we'll pick up with the battle of tannenberg which of course was the decisive battle in the in the in the east in the war between germany and russia but that's where it gets set up set up here um but yeah what's the real theme here is the failure of of all these plans uh really the the french and the german plans in the western front um but actually the Ger the british plans too seem we see warnings that things aren't going to go smoothly as as people thought so where we pick things up, chapter 12 is called the BEF to the continent. The BEF, of course, is the British Expeditionary Force. This was the, the British uh, military uh, sent to, the, to France to fight. Um, now, initially, it was just a few divisions. The British didn't have this huge standing army. It had to be mobilized and, and recruited and trained. They didn't have the large standing army that Britain and France had. So their contribution early on was very important, I think, as we'll see later on in this book. But... It was, it was relatively small compared to the other armies on the field. But um, even this was sort of a, a, um, a little bit of a mess, we get the sense of. Just we get the sense of the lack of preparation uh, among the British um, at the time in, in August 1914. Um, conflicts among the, the administration, among the government about who's in charge. Um, you know, disputes and things like that came to the forefront right away. And one of the early disputes was over the scale that the British Expeditionary Force would have to be. Um, for instance, we get uh, Tuckman writing this, quote, having had no personal share in the military planning for war on the continent, Kitchener was able to see the Expeditionary Force in its true proportions and did not believe its six divisions likely to affect the outcome of the impending clash between 70 German and six, 70 French divisions. Though a professional soldier, the more I had come across in the time, said Lord Cormner, when Kitchener came out to command the Khartoum campaign, his campaign had largely been pursued at Olympian levels. He dealt in India, Egypt, empire, and large concepts only. He was never able to speak or to notice a private soldier. He had never, or he had never seen to speak to or notice a private soldier. Like Clausewitz, he saw war as an extension of policy, and he took it from there. Unlike Henry Wilson and the general staff, he was not trapped in the schedules of deep Barkation, railroad timetables, horses, and billets. Staying at the distance, he was able to see the view of the war as a whole in terms of the relations of the powers and to realize in the immense effort of national military expansion that would be required for a long contest about to begin. We must be prepared, he announced, to put armies of the millions in the field and maintain them for several years. His audience was stunned and incredulous, but Kitchener was relentless. To fight a winning European war, Britain must have an army of 70 divisions, equal to the Continental Armies, and he calculated that such an army would not reach full strength until the third year of war. End quote. Um, so 
when I thought, when I was thinking of this when I read this part, of course, is, you know, Kitchener's right. He does, he's presented as a aloof person who just thinks in grand strategic terms, but of course he's right about the outcome. But what I was thinking here is if you look at British history, when Britain did get involved in those European conflicts, those European continental wars, these were long drawn out affairs involving, as here, millions of soldiers, you know. Uh, or at least hundreds of thousands. You know, if you think of the wars of against Louis the Fourteenth, the War of the Leave of Augsburg, or the War of the Spanish Secession, or the Napoleonic Wars, the Seven Years' War. Um, I'm not being chronological there. Sorry for that. But um, you know that that's in some ways it's not quite the model. Of course, those weren't trench warfare,s but they were long drawn out affairs that required Britain to raise a large army, get it to Europe, sustain it, supply it, keep it in the field and fight for years and years, um, which they didn't have to do much since Napoleon. You know, in the 19th century, they, they were involved with the Crimean War, you know, various wars in their colonies, but these weren't these huge affairs. But, but Kitchener seemed to know what was happening. But the, but the war planners, that's the point here, the planners, the people who, who, you know, figured out how to get the troops there, who were working on that issue, how to get a few divisions to to Europe, didn't think in the t mainland Europe, didn't think of in terms that Kitchener was thinking of. So these kind of conflicts immediately came to the forefront in the British government. And, and that's kind of the major theme of this chapter, it seems to me. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's an important one. And I think it's, it's right away speaking to this theme, I think that comes out in the middle part of this book, which is just the failure of, of of these plans, you know, across the board, none of these plans really worked out as as they thought, and that's what happens in chapter thirteen called uh, "Sambre et Muise," which um, well, this one in chapter fourteen we can kind of look at together, I guess, uh, which is called "Debacle." Um, these really focus on the failure of the Schlieffen plan and the failure of the French strategy of attacking through attacking attacking in Alsace. And really relying on that kind of this Alain strategy, this strategy of nationalist energy and exuberance and, and military um, spirit, right? The term that Tuckman always talks about here is Alain, right? This idea that, you know, the, the French will make up for their demographic weakness and just their spirit and their nationalist determination to, to take back their lost land and to seize the moment and all that. And, you know, that was a failure. It's easier to see why that was a failure because it seems kind of dumb uh, in hindsight. But the Schlieffen plan, this meticulously laid out plan, uh, which involved, as I said before, you know, you know, timetables down to the to the minute and the hour for getting troops to the front. That was just as much a failure because it was it was it was too complex, too intricate, too many things could go wrong. Right. So one plan was too abstract. Too ideal, too much based on nationalism and, and pride and, and exaggerated beliefs in the cap capacity of the soldiers and the military, and the other, you know, and that failed for obvious reasons. But the, you know, the the idea that everything can work like a machine, the idea that a military can work with you like a machine, that everything will go according to plan, also fails. We've already seen that with the failure of the ultimatum on Brussels, right? Uh, the the ultimatum given to Belgium to allow German troops through. That was a key part of the Schlieffen plan, and that, that failed too. So from day one, uh, it, was, it was already going wrong. But um, this chapter 13 really emphasizes the, the failure of the Schlieffen plan. Um, I think she has a whole section on it here. 
Quote, from the moment the French attack began in Orléans, Moltex resolved to carry through Schlieffen's total reliance upon the right wing began to slip. He and his staff expected the French to bring up their main forces on their left to meet out the threat of the German right wing. As anxiously as Lyrance went out, sent out scouts looking for the British. OHL looked for evidence of strong French movements off the west of the Meuse and up to August 17th found none. The vaccine problem of war presented by the refusal of the enemy to behave as expected and his own best interest beset them. They concluded from the movements in Lorraine and from the lack of movement on the west that the French were concentrating their main force for an offensive through Lorraine between Metz and Vosges. Uh, they asked themselves if this did not require a readjustment of German strategy. If this were the main French attack, could not if this were the main French attack, could not the Germans, by a shift of forces through their own left wing, bring around a decisive battle in Lorraine before the right wing could accomplish, be accomplished by envelopment? End quote. So the thinking here is, can you change course? Can the Schlieffen plan like, be redirected because of conditions on the ground, right? The French not doing what was expected. The idea was the French would send their forces to meet them and they would be enveloped uh, through this... this uh, this kind of Cannae strategy, right? That's the model, we were told. Earlier in this book, the model was the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal defeating the Romans, but just kind of one-armed, a one-armed Cannae. Uh, but when the French started to attack Lorraine, you know, how could, could they readjust? And the answer is no, ultimately. Once put in motion, it was very, very difficult to, to readjust anything. But as I said, this chapter goes really nicely with chapter 14, which is called Debacle, Lorraine, Ardennes, uh, Charleroi, and Mons. Um, and this is kind of the French perspective. Uh, it's kind of Tuckman's approach in this book is to each chapter kind of focusing on one side or the other and their thinking uh, and their response to what's happening on the ground. Um, and, and the chapter begins with a reminder of French commitments to the strategy of Elan. For instance, she wrote, Nevertheless, France was committed to Plan 17 as her only design for decisive victory, and Plan 17 demanded the offensive now and no later. The only alternatives would have been to change at once to defense of the frontiers. In terms of the training, the planning, and the thinking, the spirit of the French military organism, this was unthinkable. End quote. And what a great summary of her whole perspective here, right? Just the difficulty of institutions. I, I think more and more, this is actually, as much as it's a military history and a history of the battles and the wars, it's an institutional history. It's a critique of institutional entrenchment and, and, and bureaucratization, if you want to say. Um, although in the French sense, it's, it's the French case, I don't know if bureaucracy is the right term for what it is, but it's, it's an institutional culture. That is that can't be reformed. It, it can't easily be changed. It's it's there from the leadership down to the the common soldier, in some way. And so if you're gonna, you know, it's kind of a group think. Maybe that's the word I'm thinking of. Group think, and you know, that's such a, a problem in in institutions. It's studied by political scientists. It's studied by sociologists, and it's a real phenomenon, right? People tend to embrace the culture of their institution. And dissenters don't get respected, don't move up in the hierarchy. They don't uh, often get their voice heard. They're too cowardly to speak or they're punished for speaking out in some cases. And this leads to institutional decadence and, and the incapacity of reform. And we see so many examples of this throughout history. So anyways, the French uh, strategy here leads to two disasters. One is the failure of the, the ultimate failure of the attack on Lorraine, which you know, probably could have predicted would fail. It's, it seems not a very good plan, but 
uh, you know, it was what, what that institution believed would work. Um, it, was belie- it was the belief how they could overcome German superiority in terms of numbers and, and, and the size of the military. But it also meant they weren't moving into the defensive position they needed to to stop the formal Schlieffen plan from fulfilling. So this leads to a defeat in the Ardennes. So they kind of get defeated on both the right and the left flanks at the same time. Right. This seems to be good news for the Germans, but the Germans are also not getting their decisive as decisive victories they could have gotten and probably needed to uh, to fulfill their plan. And the and the plan as as worked on the heads of the of the military didn't uh, didn't unfold either. So it's the chaos of of war. It's the fog of war that makes this planning kind of futile. It seems maybe not futile is the wrong term, but you can't have. I think Tuckman's trying to say you really can't have this so entrenched in the institution because it's, you know, if you can't adjust to the conditions on the ground, you're not going to win, or at least victory will be that much more difficult. And I think Tuckman really does emphasize just what a disaster this was for for the French. Uh, of course, the French win the war, but they win it, you know, after much suffering and, and having to call in many allies and... And basically commit the entire force of their of their country, down, pretty much down to the last man, to achieve this. Uh, but that's all decided in this early month. It's, it's um, again, this is the thesis of the book that that it's early. This early month decides so much of the war. She writes, "How far reduced, how distant the end, no one yet knew. No one could realize that for numbers engaged and for rate and number of losses suffered over a comparable period of combat, the greatest battle of the war had already been fought." No one could yet foresee its consequences, how the ultimate occupation of all of Belgium and northern France would put the Germans in possession of the industrial power of both countries and the manufacturers of Leech, the coal of Bornage, the iron ore of Lorraine, the factories of Lille, the rivers and railroads and agriculture, and how this occupation, feeding German ambition and fastening upon French to fix resolve, to fight to the last drop of recovering reparation, would block all later attempts at compromise, peace or peace without victory, and would prolong the war for four more years. All this is hindsight. On August 24th, the Germans felt the immense surge of confidence. They saw only beaten armies ahead. The genius of Schlieffen had been proved. The decisive victory seemed within German grasp. In France, uh, President Poincar wrote in his diary, we must make up in our minds both the retreat and to invasion. So much for the illusions of the last fortnight. Now the future of France depends on her powers of resistance. End quote. Uh, so... What's this is really important to, to what she's saying here. So the the fact that the that this war would be fought on France French soil, right, made France commit to a war to the end. They see it as a war for national survival, right? And they can't at that point surrender without being defeated. The Germans, on the other hand, by getting this advantage and having this impression of some success, a little bit more success than the French in, in this. At least up to mid-August or August twenty-fourth, it seemed they were achieving some victory, and because they had this apparent advantage, fighting on France, French soil, right, getting close to Paris, all that, it's it's harder for them to say, okay, we we should surrender because victory seems within their grasp, right? So for very different reasons, neither side can. Can, can convince themselves that a negotiated peace is worthwhile or to their advantage. 
And that's really a, a devastating, in the, in the, as, as we know, the history of the war. And, of course, it's going to be, de- from the German point of view, even more devastating because when German defeat finally comes, it's not going to be become, come because they were occupied, you know, to the capital, right? The emperor in irons, you know, the, you know it's not going to be that kind of, of defeat. So that's what led, you know, Germans after the war to have these, even though Germany was soundly defeated, it allowed people to say, well, we, we were never conquered. We were never really defeated. It must have been a conspiracy at home, right? And we know how where that goes uh, in the rise of the, the Nazi movement. So um, that's the bulk of these, these chapters. But we, we do get chapter 15 here, which is more of, a, I think, a prelude to the battle to Tannenberg, a prelude to uh, really setting up the, the Eastern Front, because we haven't talked about it, right? And it's, of course, a big part of the war. Although it's not Barbara Tuckman's focus, there's there's actually a lot here, and I don't want to criticize her too much, but there's a lot in the in the war that I think we're missing. We don't get anything about Serbia, or much of anything about the war between Austria and Serbia. We don't get much about the war between Austria and Russia. Um, that's missing, and it's not until well over halfway through the book that we actually hear about anything going on in the Eastern Front. It does seem her focus is on the Western Front, and maybe that's right for her perspective and the story she's trying to tell. Um, you know, I think most Westerners who just know about World War One don't think about much about those fronts either, so it's, it's a common thing. But anyways, uh, Chapter 15, The Cossacks Are Coming, is um, it's about the Russian Front. It's, you know... Kind of the things we expect, you know, the Schlieffen plan was based on this idea that Russian mobilization would be haphazard, uh, piecemeal, and and slow. And in fact, it was. Uh, Tuckman shows that this was in fact true. There are a lot of logistical issues. So even here, planning sort of sort of breaks down uh, in this. But it was more of an expected. It was expected by the others that would have happened. But um, Russia was not really able to respond to the realities on the ground either. Quote, Russia had made no preparations to meet the advance date for attack, which she had arranged to the French. Improvisations had to be arranged at the last moment. A scheme of forward mobilization was ordered, which skipped certain preliminary stages to gain several days' time. Streams of telegrams from Paris, delivered with personal eloquence, um, kept up the pressure. Later on, difficulties of organization were immense. The essence of the problems, as the Duke once confessed to Poincar, that's the president of France, that it was an empire as vast as Russia when an order was given, no one was sure whether it had even been delivered. Shortages of telephone wire and telegraph equipment and of trained signal corpsmen made sure, made sure or quick communication impossible. Shortage of motor transportation. So on and on. So Tuckman really lays down just how unprepared Russia was for the war. Um, and she brings up a lot the, the war against Japan. Because that was, you know, while... You know, Germany's last war, I guess, was the the Franco-Prussian War, right? The last major conflict. I think they had some colonial wars, but that, that was the major one uh, with the European power. Russia's actually had, of all these countries, had the most recent actual war experience with uh, Japan, and they got suddenly beaten, right? And this led to a revolution in 1905. So this is in the mind of the Russian military leadership. So um, she plays a little bit with how 
this is psychologically on their mind and may have affected how they plan, but they didn't they weren't able to reform in time to be in a position to respond to 1914 much better than they responded to 1904. And I don't know much about the military history of the Franco-Prussian, not the, uh, sorry, the Russo-Japanese War. I get the sense, you know, it was more just the Japanese were better prepared to go to war, right? It's the same kind of problem, right? They were able to make their victories before the Russians had time to really respond and mobilize their 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 military, their 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 men on the ground, right? The size of their troops. That was not, and that was uh you know that that was mentioned early in the book too, how, you know, Russia was seen as a good ally to have because of its manpower, but it was also seen as a liability because it couldn't really put its it cards together. Um but we just get we get a little bit about early battles, but mostly this is just setting up the Battle of of Tannenberg, which um, I guess we'll pick up with next time. So that's all I'm going to say about these these chapters. I think um, you know I think it's pretty clear what Tuckman's trying to do at this point um, in in the book. Um, this this kind of just gets us from here to there, but I do think there's some important themes here, and the most important themes is how you know things go wrong. The fog of war causes these plans to break down and it's most catastrophic for the French perhaps, but even we see for the Germans and the British, things aren't going quite according to plan. And that's um, going to lead to a very different war than anyone expected. So in the, in the next episode, I'll, I'll look at, uh, well, we'll be quite done. We'll be almost done. There's not quite 500 pages to cover in this book. So um, I, I'll, I'll kind of save the last episode to be a, a maybe a sum up, a summation, and maybe to lead us into the Prow Tower. But in the next episode, I'll look at chapter 16 through 19, which, as I suggested, deals with the Battle of Tannenberg. Um, it, does it get to the Marne? I, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, but not much of August left. We're up to like August 24th. So. Um, I think this book kind of cheats a little bit and gets a little bit into September, but that's okay. That's okay. A little. Um. So that's all. Sorry for a shorter episode. I just think there's not that much to say unless you really want to get into the personalities in the military history. There's a lot to dissect here, but I, I'm not going to bore you with that stuff. I'm, um, but I do think it's worth reading if you're interested in, in World War One and you haven't come across this book yet. So anyways, uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks for, for listening. the